Episode 1566 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing okay. We made it. The final season preview episode. (laughs) It only took like six months (laughs) this year, but we did it. We're here. (laughs) You said we made it, and I was like... That could apply to so many things. <laughs> could, you could be talking about almost anything. But yes, yeah. here here we are with our uh, final one. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we've got Dodgers and Orioles lined up for you today, the teams with the best and worst projections. So we will be talking in a moment to Pedro Mora about the Dodgers, followed by Joe Trezza on the Orioles. So it's a relief that we got here. Wasn't sure that we would ever get here. <laughs> Didn't know if we would ever finish this season preview series, which would have bothered me, I think, over and above just not having a baseball season. It would have nagged at me that we got like 22 thirtieths of the way through our team preview series. Maybe we could have done like alternate season previews for a season that wasn't going to happen just to finish. But fortunately, that's not the case. So we're, what, a week away from over? opening day less than a week away from opening day now and it sounds like that is actually gonna happen (laughs) sounds like it's gonna happen yeah i think we would have had to do something everyone involved in this podcast is sort of a completist by nature which makes us good at our jobs but sometimes not fun at parties although (laughs) i guess that matters a lot less now Mm -hmm. but yes it it is good to be able to do these and have it feel like it should be part of our jobs and that at least compared to the beginning part of the testing regime, it seems like baseball sort of figuring its its business out makes me more optimistic that the season will not only be played, but played safely, hopefully. So everyone mm-hmm. continue to be diligent and vigilant and hopefully we'll we'll get through safe and, and healthy and unscathed. So. Yeah. So just a couple quick things. A, I always hate it when we do a preview for a team and we talk about some exciting player on that team and then that player instantly gets hurt after we talk about it. So we talked about Julio Rodriguez, the top Mariners prospect the other day, and then he broke his <laughs> wrist right after we, we previewed the Mariners season. Just a hairline fracture that he suffered while diving for a ball during a drill. And I don't know, he, he might not have seen playing time this year anyway, so yeah. maybe it doesn't actually affect the 2020 Mariners, but always kind of a downer when that happens. Yeah, and concerning because I believe it was his left wrist, which he has injured previously. Mm-hmm. On a hit-by-pitch, yeah. Yeah, so that's never, it's not what you want, you know, mm-hmm. to have repeated injuries in the same place. You don't want any injuries at all. But yes, hopefully uh, hopefully Julio uh, is on the mend soon he's he's very fun and exciting to watch and i think that that's true even if you haven't had a um strange relationship with your preferred baseball team that makes you excited for gosh some of the guys been some of the guys i've been amped for 
Yeah. Man. Who are your, your all-time most disappointing <laughs> Mariners? <laughs> I think, well, oh gosh, that's a, so, such a hard question to answer. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the most obvious one for my purposes, just based on the guy I've talked about most frequently, is probably Zanino, right? I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. just the easy leader in the clubhouse. But gosh, hmm. I guess Ackley must be up there, right? Yeah. Ackley's up there. I really thought Bedard would be different. I thought mm. that would go a different way, man. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it would go. I mean, so did the Mariners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord alive. Yeah, Ackley's pretty high up there. The The Ackley thing will always sting just because of, of who else was available to the Mariners in that draft right. class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that one will always sting in a particular way, which is unfair to Dustin Ackley, you know. I mean, Mike Mike Zanino's situation is in some ways unfair to Mike Zanino cuz he didn't he didn't decide to call himself up so quick. That wasn't mm-hmm. his that wasn't his decision at all. So yeah, it's it's one of those things where uh, it's a good reminder that a lot, and and I don't say this as if I have some special insight that Julio's career is now derailed in some way. We don't we we obviously don't know that and um, don't have reason to think that. But it is a good reminder that just you know so many things have to go right for prospects to even just reach the majors, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of stuff has to go right. They have to stay healthy and be good, and their teams can't mess them about. So it's just a, a good reminder that you should uh, appreciate. How, we should have a greater appreciation for anyone who logs major league time, I think, uh, than than we tend to, because uh, it's it's quite quite a feat. Yeah. So in other five-man infield news, we talked the other day about how the Yankees are considering using a five-man infield with Zach Britton on the mound, and sounds like the Rays are also working on the five-man infield. Way to go, Jeff. So they tried it out the other day in an intra-squad game. They had just two outfielders out there. I think it was Marco and Brian O'Grady out there, and then also they did it with Kevin Kiermaier and Hunter Renfro, and... Apparently, they just say, well, we have the outfield personnel to do this and people who can cover some ground. And Kevin Cash said it's something that they're experimenting and might use with a a ground ball pitcher on the mound. Although I think they did it in this game with Oliver Drake, former podcast guest on the mound, and he's more of a fly ball guy. But yeah, I'm thinking we'll we'll start to see this more often. I think it probably makes sense less often than the four-man outfield that we have seen catch on lately. But there are times when it probably makes sense. And uh, if it makes sense for the 2015 Stompers, then it can make sense for the 2020 Rays and Yankees. So I'm looking forward to seeing this in a non-emergency situation in a real game. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. Plus, you know, if if the Rays wanted to produce a social distancing PSA for the good (laughs) people of Florida... Who maybe need to learn some lessons about social distancing and also mask usage, as do we all. I should not pick on Floridians. We're all fallible. Uh, you, you're just ready-made, ready-made for that. Yep. Yeah, because yep. you got the you got the guys in the outfield are so far apart from one another, Ben. Exactly. Although then the infielders are closer. Very to each close. Other, so that yeah, kinda... I guess my. <laughs> but but probably still six feet apart, mostly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I guess probably so. Probably. It's like yeah. A... Unfortunately, the Rays just lost an outfielder to COVID-19. Austin Meadows tested positive. So, 
That's unfortunate, but yes, you're right. It is a a distancing measure, and I look forward to seeing that this year. I'm trying to make a mental list of things that I will enjoy and hope to see about the season, and maybe we can do a little draft or conversation about that next week when the season's actually starting. But yeah. And just a quick follow-up to our email episode. Some people wrote in or tweeted in to respond to the question about the parable of the businessman who says that he can have any wish, but his rival gets double whatever he wishes for. So he wishes for like half his business to go out of business so that his rival's entire business will go out of business. And we talked about that from a baseball rooting perspective. What would you root for? Would you root more for your team to succeed, knowing that it would mean your rival would succeed twice as much? And a couple of people wrote in to say that instead of wishing for a World Series, you could just wish for like a 60 loss season you could just wish for kind of like a halfway point so you're essentially saying that i want my team to lose whatever 50 60 games which means that it's going to win 100 something games and then that would mean that your rival would lose 100 something games and and that would be nice for you too but it wouldn't be the certainty because that was one of the drawbacks that we talked about that if you just wish for a world series and it's guaranteed then is that even fun does it even feel legitimate if you just wished for like a good team and your rival to have a bad team then there would still be some uncertainty there it would still be up in the air a little bit and you wouldn't have fully sealed the fates of the two teams so i see the merits of that approach Yeah, I see the merits of it, but I still think there's something really satisfying about emerging victorious on your own, on your own merits. (laughs) Yes, I I think so too. Yeah, all the like, would you wish for this or that? Generally, I I feel like I wouldn't because it sort of spoils it if you just wish for it and a genie gave it to you. I mean, (laughs) what's the fun in that? Unless you're like in some dire situation where you wish your way out of it because it's so bad to be in that situation. But just sports, then I don't think so. Although I think someone said that he would have wished for like his rival to lose every game in a season. Like he would root for his team to lose half their games just because it would be so amusing for them if their rival had the worst season of all time and was winless for an entire year, which is mean, but also I, I kind of respect the pettiness. See, like, there comes a point where it stops being petty and starts being fascinating, <laughs> right? Like, if you if you imagine imagine observing that season unaware of the wishing, right? Like, mm-hmm. again, I think, and we talked about this. I think whether we know that we're operating in the genie realm or not is really important to our understanding of and enjoyment of a season like that. But like, imagine you're just you're not you're the non-wisher, right? You are sitting there observing your favorite team win exactly half its games and then you're also observing your most bitter rival but not one over over which you have any power losing all of their games i think at a certain point the the losing team's fans would be like let's just lose all of the games yeah <laughs> let's just lose all of them like let's see what that's like also at a certain point don't we get into <laughs> doesn't the genie i guess they're happening sequentially right the the question assumes that they're happening sequentially because at a certain point it's like some we're gonna the game the game logic isn't gonna work out here we're gonna have too many losses or wins or right. there's gonna be nonsense <laughs> yes um so i guess but I guess there was a sequential element to the to the wishes. But yeah, I I don't know. 
Maybe I'm just a uniquely kind person. <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> that's <yeah. about> it. <laughs> uh, but but I think that at a certain point you sit there and you're like, well, we may as well just lose all of them, and <laughs> and and be and be a, a historical oddity that everyone remembers for the rest of their lives. You'd never you'd never forget. You would know the name of the team that lost every game of its season in a 162 game season. In 162 mm-hmm. games. Right. You would know the name of that team if you had no interest in baseball at all. You would know about that team because you yes. this is incredible. Mm-hmm. It'd be the biggest story in sports. It'd yeah. be the biggest story in sports. So in some ways, who's the real winner there? You, the biggest story in sports, or some guy who just managed to go 500. That happens all the time. Who's the real winner, I ask you? Yeah, all news is good news, I guess. All PR is is good PR. Clearly not true, but... (laughs) Definitely not true, but... (laughs) Yeah. All right. And then we did also get a nice response to the question about where you would place boost pads, like Mario Kart-style boost pads on the field. Listener Austin actually made a little graphic and tweeted it at Very us. Very cool and, graphic. Yeah, and he said, my boost pad placement would be two pads, one behind shortstop and another behind second base. I'm not totally sure what would happen, but I'm imagining enough boost to make sure thing doubles into extremely high-risk catches. You might sacrifice a cutoff. Teams might change outfield depth. And that's kind of the thing that I was leaning toward. I, I wanted yeah. like long leaping catches. I wanted my boost pads in the outfield. And I want there to be a risk reward. Like you have to decide if you're going to go on the boost. It might backfire horribly or it might help you make a spectacular catch. And maybe it changes where you stand and it changes the routes you run. So I like that. And I like his little graphic, which you then immediately edited to turn into a smiley face. <laughs> yes, I wanted to make it like a little alien. I yeah. It made me think of the little boost pad placement indicators reminded me of antennas. Yeah. And so I wanted to make it into a little alien. But yeah, I think that this is very good placement and a very compelling graphic. So well done all around, I think. Mm-hmm. Before we take that break, we should pause to deliver some good and bad Braves news. Mm-hmm. The good news, it appears that Freddie Freeman is back on the field. Yep. He has recovered from COVID-19 sufficiently to test negative as he needs to and to rejoin the team. But they are going to be without Yasiel Puig, who has disclosed that he tested positive and will not be signing as a free agent with Atlanta, uh, presumably because the time to clear tests and quarantine and be able to rejoin the team just puts his timeline off of opening day. So we're very glad that Freddie's okay because yeah. it seemed like his case was very dire or at least was affecting him more than, you know, I think people might expect COVID to affect young, healthy folks. But it's sure a bummer about Puig. We hope he remains asymptomatic and recovers soon. Yeah, it's 2020. I guess you can't have any good news without some bad news accompanying it. But just when we thought it was safe to celebrate Puig being back in baseball, we'll have to wait a little longer. But yes, happy to hear that Freeman seems to be back in fighting form. Yeah, that's very good to hear. And we will say Puig, your friend, and Puig, your encourager to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. He took took time at the end of his announcement to encourage folks to wear a mask, social distance, and follow your local protocols. Please take care of yourselves. I will see you all very soon when I return to play ball. So 
Be well, Yasiel, and everyone else. Yes. So let's take a quick break, and then we will get on with finishing this thing, driving a stake into the heart of this season preview series that stretched on for half the year. So we'll be right back with Pedro Mora to talk about the Dodgers, followed by Joe Trezza on the Orioles. Los Angeles, give me a miracle, I just want out from this. It is time to talk about the Dodgers, and we are joined by Pedro Mora, who is a senior writer for The Athletic, where he covers the Dodgers. Isn't that convenient? Hello, Pedro. Hi, Ben. Hi, Meg. How are you guys? We're doing all right. So tell us how the Dodgers are doing. How has summer camp been for the Dodgers? We know that David Price has opted out, of course, but in terms of testing and other concerns, how are things going for them? They're going. They're going okay. Um, they're the the Dodgers seem to be taking the protocols very seriously. Um, they had a number of players who were late to to summer training for a variety of reasons, many of which are have not been explained. But at this point, they have you know all but one member of their forty man roster at Dodger Stadium daily, and um, every member of their planned roster is there except for for David Price. So they're they're in pretty good shape, you could say. And were there other members of the 40 men that had trepidations about the season, even as they've reported to camp? I think that Kike Hernandez had talked about potentially not playing or his contract situation different because his wife is pregnant. Um, are there other members of the team that are nervous about proceeding with 2020? Mookie Betts, from the way he spoke, sounded like he was um, that he, he might have considered opting out had he uh, had he not, you know, been nearing, you know, his significant free agency. So similar to Kike Hernandez, uh, Joe Kelly said that he had considered it, that he and, he and his wife talked about it several times, but it never got beyond the basic conversation because he didn't want to let down his teammates. Beyond that, a lot of players have said that they never even, it never occurred to them, especially the younger players. They, they've said that they did not for one moment consider opting out. So you mentioned Mookie, and that was obviously a frequent topic of conversation, the Mookie Betts trade during the months of no baseball. I think a lot of fans were fretting that there would be nothing coming out of that trade, coming back to the Dodgers if this season were canceled. Now, fortunately, that has been avoided. But David Price opted out of the season, and there is less Mookie than the Dodgers thought they were getting when they traded for him. On the other hand, every bit of Mookie that they have is potentially more important because every game matters more, and maybe they will actually need that extra edge from having Mookie. In the past, you you might have said, well, they need him to win the World Series, but they could probably win the division without him. In this 60-game season, there's really no guarantee of that. So... I guess that if they had known how things would happen, they probably would not have been motivated to make that precise trade. But do you still see some upside here just in terms of this season and future seasons of price and if they're able to keep Mookie around? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you indicated, there was, you know, there would have been a 15, 20 game gap between the Dodgers and another 
an L West competitor, you would think, in a in a one sixty two game season. But in in this slate, it's the the gap is a lot smaller. You know that said, even without Mookie Betts, I would still think the Dodgers were going to win the National League West. So it's it's not as if they're in dire straits. But yeah, the postseason is you know still slated to be just as long as normal, and so <laughs> Mookie Betts would be very valuable in that spot. He's a really good player, you know, watching him even in inter-squad games, even in Cactus League games. I've been very impressed by his consistency as a, as a ball player. He's, he's really good at baseball. Um, I didn't know that necessarily. I know, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I didn't watch him all the time. <laughs> and um, he's really good. He's, he kind of reminds me of this other guy I used to cover. His name was Mike Trout. Mm, and just yeah. in the consistency of it. So I'm impressed. And I, I understand why the Dodgers would, would want, want his services. He's good. One trade that they didn't end up making was a trade that would have sent Jack Peterson to Anaheim. And the Dodgers were already sort of an embarrassment of riches when it came to their position players. Um, They're one of the few teams in the National League who I think really benefited uh, from a universal DH. So you have a potentially crowded outfield situation. You have a bunch of infielders who can play the outfield and outfielders who routinely play the infield. So as they're approaching their DH position, is that really Jock's job or are they planning to cycle guys through there to keep them fresh? What's their approach going to be? Yeah, I think it, it mostly, Jock could end up playing there a lot, but I guess the way to the way I think of it is he would have been playing against right-handed pitching anyway. So it really creates space for three players, I think, more, most, or maybe four. AJ Pollock, who was going to be a platoon player at best and now has some more right-handed pitching at bats. Kike Hernandez and Chris Taylor, utility men who had no obvious spots on the on the roster. And then even more, I mean, maybe it's five guys and Edwin Rios and Matt Beatty, two corner infield left field types who can't really play a position competently, haven't proven that they can, but can hit pretty well. Rios has a lot of pop and Beatty has a, has a great hit tool. So uh, Dave Roberts will, will alternate between those guys kind of all the time regularly. And I think give Justin Turner a lot of days off from third. So it's, um yeah, as you said, Meg, it's a huge advantage for them to have this this spot. I mean, they're, one of the reasons they wanted to trade Jock Peterson and Ross Stripling was because there wasn't enough room for them to, to, to necessarily benefit the club the way they might um, another team. But this year, in this circumstance, you know, Stripling has become really important with David Price and Jimmy Nelson out. And he looks like he's going to open the season in rotation. And, um, and Peterson is, you know, He's not a not a great defender, but he's a he can certainly hit for power. And so, yeah, if you move him to DH, that makes perfect sense. Looking ahead to the future of the outfield and Mookie's future with the Dodgers, do you think there's anything that he could do or not do in these next two or three months to meaningfully change either the kinds of contracts he gets offered this offseason or the Dodgers' level of interest in him? I mean, we've got a, a pretty long resume and rich resume here with him. He's been, I think, pretty clearly the second best player in baseball since he came up. So can anything that happens in this small sample season actually make the Dodgers more interested in investing in him or make more of a, a bidding frenzy this offseason, do you think? It's a good question, one I don't know the answer to. You would think that if he can keep the season going on his own, that would probably help his payout, you would think, right? I, I think teams are going to be more willing to spend money if they make money you know, over the next three months. As crude as that sounds, right? That's the be- the best estimation I have at this point as to what you know what's going to control the free agent market. We're already expecting, you know, the you know the four hundred plus million dollar deal he might have pursued and, and been handed before this. I think is you know the general consensus is that that's outside the window now. But uh, 
I think, you know, a lot of money is still available. He's a really good player, probably a second best player. And so the short answer is I I don't really think so. You know, I don't think, you know, he's his play has actually fluctuated a fair bit, right? Like over Mm -hmm. the last few few years, like he hasn't been, I mean, he's an incredible player, but the the difference, you know, between 17 and 18 was massive, right? And so, but the overall package is, you know, you're getting a, you know, a hitter who for his career has been 35, 40% better than league average and does everything else, you know, really well. I'm going to take a step back from the club as it is currently constituted or might be constituted next year and look further down the road. I'm curious what reaction you were able to glean from the Dodgers about the draft being a shortened exercise this year and potentially continuing to be a shortened exercise in future years. They are sort of famous for being able to take late round guys, especially pitchers, and add a little something extra to them in player development and then produce, you know, real major leaguers beyond the fifth round. So they seem like a club that would be particularly adverse to any shortening of the draft. What was your sense of how their scouting department looked at this year's draft and what they would like it to look like in future years? Yeah, they would like it to be very long and much longer than it was this year. I think it's fair to say that they were yeah. disappointed with how it was outlaid and how, how little say they had in it. I was, um, yeah, they, they, they made that fairly clear. Their scouting director, Billy Gasparino, was open about that. Yeah, I mean, they did, they they only brought in one, under, they've only brought in to date one undrafted free agent. It's less than I expected for sure. And yeah, you would think that this is an organization that is, I mean, kind of built on that, the taking advantage of later round prospects. I mean, they have, what, what they have maybe more than any club is like, above replacement players you know in triple a ready to 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 come up when when needed they have a lot of pretty okay baseball players in their organization they have so many outfielders who are who project to be like one to two win players at the big league level you know which doesn't sound sexy or anything but is valuable obviously if you're running a ball club so i think yeah over time you would think that that would take away from that advantage a lot and so we thought that maybe the dodgers would be able to attract a bunch of undrafted free agents based on the fact that they have that track record with player development but so far it hasn't materialized i think the twenty thousand dollar limit is just you know understandably not enough to appetize a lot of uh, amateur players yeah the lineup is just so stacked top to bottom and yet it's mostly not players that they signed for a ton of money from outside the organization or traded for there's mookie of course but other than that it's like five of the the starters are Dodgers draftees and sort of the the set starting lineup at least and then Muncie was just like a free talent pickup guy that they helped remold and Turner I guess they just picked up at the right time I don't know how much they played a role in his turnaround which has been well chronicled but really it's impressive that they have put together this lineup and they have all these resources and the payroll and everything but it's just such a player development powerhouse And I wonder what you think it is exactly that has produced that. Is it investments in technology? Is it the size of the staff? Is it the type of people they're hiring? How are they doing this? I would like to have a better answer for you, Ben. It's something that I've spent a fair amount of time trying to answer but it's you know for obvious reasons they're protective of uh of of that advantage right but i think some of what you you know you you sort of started to get at the answers i think the technology is a big part of it maybe this is this is going to come out a little bit out of left field but i think it's the the type of coach the youth of the coach they've had a lot of really young minor league coaches that are out of the traditional mold of what you might think of as um you know as, as seasoned minor league coaches and they've really gotten through to players i think across the board and you know they've also lost a lot of that advantage uh, you know other teams have hired their guys with regularity i mean gabe kapler both of his jobs has hired a bunch of 
Dodgers minor league coaches to be in major league roles. And you see those guys being praised by their players. I think they have coaches and, and, and staffers across the board who resonate with players and they have a balance, you know, while they have like a 29 year old who studies um, pitch data to the most, they also have Charlie Huff on staff and those guys, and you can hear from either one of those people. It's a, it's an interesting system that is definitely undercovered by me and the media, I think for, for how much of an impact it has on, on the, uh, on the major league product. And it's something that we've sort of collectively failed at. I think explaining why just just why it is the way that it is, but um, it's because you know it's their biggest. I think I don't think it's a stretch to say that it's their biggest competitive advantage at this point. I'm curious then because they clearly have prospects in their 60 man player pool, but they have a lot of guys who they're expecting to take steps forward or contribute to the big league club at some point. So, what is their approach to player development been during this layoff, and what's it going to be now that we know we're not going to have a minor league season? Yeah, they kept in touch with a lot of their minor leaguers pretty regularly. Again, I, I don't know exactly how much other teams are have done have done so, but I know that like dating back to March, they had you know daily, weekly calls with minor leaguers across the board. Dave Roberts recorded a video that they sent to each minor leaguer. They had coaches whose job was just to check in. They have a spreadsheet of every every player, everywhere he is, you know, what, what he's supposed to be doing and and whatnot. And there's there's a lot of communication between them as far as how they're going to keep development up for the players who aren't in the player pool i i don't know how to answer that it seems like an impossibility with the entire you know just how big it is but i think it's interesting that they brought you know 18 year old diego cartaya who's one of the five you know most promising prospects in the organization they brought him to the player pool he's 18 years old is years away from the big leagues but they value his development and it's it's interesting to see who they chose to other than outside of him it's mostly Pitchers who are on the cusp, who are, you know, one who with in a normal season would have been one good summer away from being called up in September. So they did not really bring a lot of their lower level guys into the uh, into the pool. So in what ways do you think this short season kind of removes some of the Dodgers' advantage? Because one of the things that they had going for them is just tremendous depth, just unbelievable. Like you could take the the Dodgers' second stringers and it would be a pretty competitive team. And over a 60-game season, let's hope really that that's not as big of an advantage because, you know, if it were, then that would mean that a lot of guys were getting sick or hurt or were unavailable for some reason. But can they still make use of of that depth in ways that gives them an edge? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, the simple way is like the 27th through 30th spots on their roster right right now in the first two weeks of the season, you know, those guys on the Dodgers are going to be better than other teams' players. You know, their 27th guy is Edwin Rios probably. And he's, you know... I, he has a better track record is go, you know would project to be a better player this year than say the Diamondbacks 27th player or the Padres 27th player so it's it's kind of simple right I mean then that advantage is going to you know abate over time as they um, as, the, as the roster shrinks but they just have more depth and so yeah I, I'm with you I, I I totally hope that it's not that this season does not come down to second string versus second string because that would be a you know a disaster in this country but <laughs> depth is depth is depth and there is I think Unfortunately, we have to project that there is going to be some of that happening this year. And I think the Dodgers, you know, 26 through 30 and 30 through 40 is still better than their their competition. And they've lost some of it already. You know, I think other teams, you lose their number three, if they if they had lost their number three starter, it would be a more material effect to what you would expect from their season. With the Dodgers, David Price's absence is, is, is really small uh, in terms of how it changes what you expect from them. So last year was the first year in Fangraph's preseason staff predictions that no one selected 
Clayton Kershaw as a potential Cy Young winner for the NL. That was the first time in, I think, almost a decade that that had been true. I'm curious, you know, our projections are still pretty optimistic for him, at least compared to many of the other top line starters in a shortened season, but he's obviously not quite the same guy that he was when he was the undisputed best pitcher in baseball. What are the Dodgers' expectations of him this year, and what are his expectations of his own production? His expectations are sky freaking high. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) As always, they'll always be that way. The Dodgers believe that, you know, he was really good last year, which the evidence shows that he was, right? I think people have lost sight of the the consistent dominance, really, near dominance at least, of his his run prevention because, you know, the velo's down and the the walks are up and the homers are up. But the, the results are still really dang good. He was really good last year. And I think, you know, he went to driveline in the offseason and he he displayed a, um, you know, a renewed commitment to sort of discovering what else he could do, you know, to, to keep himself uh, modern and, uh, as he turns 32. Um, and I, I think early reviews in spring training and so far in the summer camp are, are pretty good. You know, his velo was up a little bit right before the shutdown happened. And I think, and not to oversimplify every pitcher's problems as they're s- simply related to how hard they're throwing, but in his case, when you're probably his biggest problem in the last couple of years, was was the you know increasing similarities between his fastball and his slider and so an extra tick or two i think for him would really help especially if he had it consistently during the season because it would it would essentially make two pitches better because his slider could could then have more of a differentiation and really trick hitters you know he's talked about working on a changeup and that's been sort of an ever present white whale in his career but it hasn't been solved but i don't i don't think that's not necessary for him to you know even even get better i think you know, he's had a 2-7 and 3 ERA these last two years. And I think you could expect something in between those conceivably, especially if his velo is um is up. You know, there's there's he is still going to figure out ways to get people out. I, I expect that from him. You know, I, I don't think I think as long as Clayton Kershaw's pitching in the major leagues, he's going to be good. I don't expect him to ever put up like a, a, a below I don't expect him to ever put up an average season. Yeah, you know you're in good shape when you have an ERA just over three and people are like, mm, Clayton Kershaw wash. And it's like, mm, I think our perspective on this is a little warped. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think the rest of the rotation looks like behind Kershaw, behind Bueller? Because it's always a little amorphous on the Dodgers pitching staff because usually they have like 13 people who could start if they needed them to and they just sort of cycle them in and out. So no Price and no Jimmy Nelson and Kenta Maeda is gone. And so some of the, the names are not the same and maybe a little of the depth is is reduced, but there's still a lot there. So what do you think the distribution of starts shakes out as? Yeah, well, it, after Bueller, it, it looks like it's going to be Julio Urias and then Ross Stripling and Alex Wood. Alex Wood probably in their fourth spot. Stripling has had a uh, really good preseason in both forms and, you know, has a, has a pretty solid track record, even though he's been, you know, used relentlessly as a swingman. So the Dodgers are, it seems, counting on him. Dustin May is would be the next up, and you would expect him to make starts this season. But, of course, the service time issue is ever-present. Uh, Tony Gonsolin also is, is, would be probably seventh in line, um, counting this, those first five. Uh, yeah, the, the depth is not o- as overwhelming, you know, as probably we expected in spring training, you know, Nelson and Price's absence is probably, you know, do hurt, but, um, yeah, I think that they should be fine. One thing to note is that Bueller has, is really not been stretched out nearly at all. It seems, it sounds like he took a lot of the, the shutdown off and did not throw. Um, whereas like Kershaw has thrown five plus innings at this point in, in one stint, uh, in, in one game, Bueller has, has maxed out at two. 
and is still working it up. So I think in the first, you know, if he makes the, like the, if he starts the fourth game of the season, he's not going to throw more than three innings. So they're going to need a lot of um, piggybacking behind him. Luckily they have, they have guys who are stretched out and can do that. Like Caleb Ferguson is a former starter. Who's a reliever who I could see them, you know, balancing a a lefty with righty in a, in a piggybacking situation at the start of the season. But yeah, the the next two guys after their, after their first five are going to be Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin. To go back to the outfield for a sec, do you know if they gave any consideration to swapping Bellinger and Betts out there? I mean, you can't go wrong with either in center or right. They're both gold glovers and and deserving ones. But I wondered about that just because, you know, Mookie was a a great right fielder in a park where it's really difficult to play right field. And he was, of course, playing next to Jackie Bradley. And in any other park on any other team, he probably would have been playing center and probably would have done well there. So I wonder whether they even considered potentially trying him in center and Bellinger in right. I don't think it was it was that much of a consideration. I mean, Dave Roberts said so. Said his you know said where those those two fellows were playing a couple of days after Betts was acquired. So it was not something they deliberated on for a long time. Mm-hmm. I don't know that either one of them necessarily cares that much about which position it is, as long as they're in a in a spot. You know, Bellinger has been pretty open about the fact that he does benefit when he only has to play one position, and and I think Betts is there's some stuff from him saying the same thing in Boston. So it's um. It just hasn't been a priority, I guess. But I don't. It doesn't. No. To answer your your question, I don't think it was much of a consideration for them. And while we're on that subject of outfielders, I, I guess the one of the few somewhat disappointing Dodgers was AJ Pollock last year, and he's just had trouble staying on the field. It's not often, as we mentioned, that the Dodgers really sign a free agent or, or go out outside the organization to get one because they've done such a great job of producing their own players. But they did go out and sign Pollock when a lot of people were advocating that they sign Bryce Harper or, or someone even flashier, and Pollock was not unproductive when he played but just didn't play a whole lot and that's kind of a theme with him he hasn't really played a full season since 2015 I mean I guess that's kind of the only time that he has really played a full season so what's the outlook for him and what's he looking like health-wise yeah the thing with Pollock is that there's two things with his last season is that one the 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 injury that kept him out the for so much the year was a total freak thing right he 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 scraped his elbow on a on a dirty wall at Wrigley Field, and and contracted an infection and had to miss months with that. And it was you know it was fairly significant. I mean his, he was concerned. I mean he was in the ER for different days. So it, it's not it was not an injury that occurred on a baseball field. And the the other thing is that he while his hitting was you know basically on par with the last couple last three years, his defense was not. He was he was a below average at times poor defender in center and and sort of was moved to left and is not a center fielder anymore. You know, he's not, it, it just kind of ended his center field career ended last year, it seems. And he's, he's, he's a left fielder now. And it's, um, you know, the Dodgers signed him for 55 million more than well, I think the expectation was that he would get because they believe that he was sort of like a, uh, a poor man's Mookie Betts, I think to, to stretch it in that he was competent at everything there was on the baseball field. And uh, that quickly, you know, in, in within the first two weeks of April, his defense was clearly not, not, a, not adept in center field anymore. And so they had to adapt to that. And then soon enough, he got hurt. And then soon enough, he was a left fielder. As far as his health this year, he, you know, he arrived a few days ago at, at Dodger Stadium for camp. I, I don't know why he was absent for the first week plus, but his, uh, his wife did give birth to a daughter who was, I believe, born... Uh, extremely prematurely and spent the, the first several weeks, months of her life in, in the neonatal ICU. So obviously that has been a concern of his 
he, he's due to talk to reporters today at Dodger Stadium. So we'll find out a little bit more about potentially about the reasons for his absence. But yeah, I'm sure it was a, a scary situation for them. So one of the other sources of excitement this year is the prospect of a full season or, you know, whatever we're we're calling this 60 games of Will Smith and Gavin Lux. And we got almost 60 games of Will Smith last year. And if you just sort of prorated that over a full season, T would be basically a star. And Gavin Lux had his incredible minor league stats and didn't make as big a splash in his initial major league action. But are those guys, I mean, is, is Lux kind of just like the leading rookie of the year contender? Is there just every expectation that Smith is going to continue to play at something close to that level and that Lux will not really have many more growing pains? I don't know. That might be a little oversimplified. I think Lux, I'm not, I'm not convinced that he is going to play every day. Um, I think, he, you know, at the time of the shutdown, it, it was not a guarantee that he was going to make the Dodgers opening day roster. It sort of seemed like they were transitioning him out of that, in fact. He was DHing a lot in mid-March, um, or early March, I guess I should say, and uh, it seemed like they were tra- they were trying Kike Hernandez and Chris Taylor more at second and, and maybe working in a situation where Lux would, would come back up to the big leagues later in the year. But, you know, that, that wasn't a guarantee by any means. But I, I'm just saying that I wouldn't necessarily count on him to be the, the everyday second baseman. No, nothing he did in September invalidated his prospect status. You know, obviously the Dodgers believe that he is a, a future star. And so do a lot of people around baseball. But I think, you know, he's still young. And I, I could see them working him into a, you know, to a first righty role at first. As, as Will Smith goes, yeah, he's going to be the, you know, he's going to be the primary catcher. Austin Barnes is still going to play a fair bit, though. And Smith last year was was sort of classic uh, rookie thing of like he was either really good or really bad. He he had a stretch there where he was sort of an automatic out at the plate. I mean, it was it was not ideal and created some concern going into the postseason as to what the Dodgers could do, right? Where both of their their catchers were were not hitting well. And that was going into the postseason, maybe the biggest concern out there about their lineup. And, um, you know, granted, uh, you know, the Pollock thing ended up being a bigger concern. I think Smith, the jury remains out about how good of a hitter he actually is. You know, he's still a competent big league catcher, no doubt, because he has pop and he can defend and p- pitchers like throwing to him. But I don't know, you know, I don't know what kind of batting average he's going to hit for. I don't know, you know, how, how consistently he can work walks. You know, the one thing we know is he does have power and he's, you know, in, in a, you know, over a 162, you'd project him to be a 20 to 30 homer guy, no doubt. The rest of the offensive profile, I think, is still unclear. I want to talk about Kenley Jansen for a minute. He rebounded some from a value perspective last year, and his peripherals were better in some respects, but he is clearly not the guy he was in 2017. You know, whenever you have pitchers with a long layoff, you don't know how the time off is going to either help or hinder them. But I'm curious what their expectations are for him and sort of how they might end up reshuffling the the bullpen a bit if Kenley stumbles a bit out of the gate or isn't able to regain more of his form. Yeah, the team was really encouraged in, in February, March about about Jansen's progress. He spent the entire offseason throwing. He also went to driveline and, and reevaluated where he was with his cutter and why it, it wasn't cutting anymore. And the early results were quite good. He was also throwing harder and, uh, and, and had more movement on his pitches. You know, over the shutdown, it's not exactly clear, you know, where he was and he contracted COVID-19 as he told reporters, and, and had symptoms. Um, but he's back to throwing. He pitched in a game a couple days ago in an inter-squad game at Dodger Stadium and seemed pretty good. As far as what the Dodgers could do if he is you know, more like he was in 2018 and 19 and not like he was you know, in the half decade before that, 
they have a lot of relief options. They have a lot of guys who have been good in the past. Blake Trinan, you know, is two years removed from one of the most dominant relief seasons in Major League history. Joe Kelly crushed the Dodgers in the World Series two years ago. Uh, Pedro Baez has been a pretty consistent setup man for a long time. They have other guys with good stuff like there. But Trinan would probably be the, the secondary closer, I guess you should say. But I think the Dodgers are going to give Jansen a, a good go at this. And um, there's reason to believe that he can be better than he was in the past couple of years. I think there was a lot of frustration within the organization about how Jansen sort of refused to adapt in 18 and 19 and, and refused to throw hitters off of the scent of his cutter, which was, you know, he was still throwing just as much as he always had, but it was so clearly less effective. And so, you know, as the pitching coach, assistant pitching coach, bullpen coach, they're just frustrated that, you know, their their messages went unheeded often. And he started started to get the message, it seemed, and worked in more sliders. And one problem is that his slider is not nearly the elite pitch that his cutter once was. But there's the simple fact of needing to mix things up. And, you know, what, he got beat by some, some minor league style hitters, I think. There was a guy named Rowdy. Uh, I forget his last name. Some, his name was Rowdy. I remember that. And he hit a home run <laughs> off of a... Uh, off of Jansen and it was illuminating to the Dodgers because it was it was he was just throwing him cutters and he he was acting like he was uh you know he, the pitcher they used to be three years before the pitcher that would never get beat by a um an unestablished you know non non-prospect major leaguer for for that kind of uh play I mean that was a, it was a big home run as I recall or it, it was definitely a home run I don't remember much about it but it was it was illuminating in that he just wasn't the, you know, the Kenley Jansen of old anymore. I think that's when he started to get the message that he needed to mix in his pitches more. And so if he does that and also his pitches are better, then he should be better. Dave Roberts came in for his annual October criticism last year. And really, even I had kind of a hard time defending how he handled things in the NLDS last year. And I'm typically in the camp of, you know, manager decisions don't even make as much of a difference as we usually think. And if you're getting there every year, that's very valuable. And maybe that outweighs the occasional tactical mistake. But even so, there was some seemingly glaring stuff there. But the Dodgers, at least publicly, didn't bat an eye, brought him back, had extended extended him the previous year. So do they think that he has made poor tactical decisions in the playoffs, but they just think that the good he does outweighs that? Or do they think that that's overblown and that he has managed fine? And, and I guess if you know whether they do have some quibbles with how he's handled those things, I wonder whether they've talked through those situations in an attempt to avoid making those mistakes again. Yeah, I think the Dodgers front office and, and Dave Roberts have definitely talked through, you know, past high profile instances. You know, I think like you, Ben, I think last season's whatever you want to call them, choices, I guess, <laughs> in the in the uh in the in the in the division series against the Nats, particularly in that last game, kind of befuddled me more than some of the ones in the past. You know, the, yeah. the famous Rich Hill one in the World Series, right. I believe to be, you know, just an honest mistake that obviously had massive consequences, but was just, you know, kind of a, a wild thing. And, you know, I've written about this before, just that, you know, he, Dave Roberts went out there, he's he maintains to talk to, to talk to the pitcher and uh, but the pitcher didn't see him uh, running out there and so he thought he was uh, he thought he was had had to give up the ball and so the ball was over and then, then you know the relievers were in and the game was over it's a wild circumstance last year is a different story you know some of the choices that he made I, I didn't find to be in the best interest of the team he doesn't feel the same way and it, the team has not criticized him publicly uh, about them and I think yeah to, to, to sum it up the overall answer that you hear from the organization is 
no matter small issues, the, they believe that he is one of the best managers in baseball um, because he continually has the players in position to succeed. And I think overall it's true. I mean, if you, you know, who would be better? I, I don't know that there are many managers in baseball who would be better than him, despite the, the issues, you know, the, the choices in the postseason. That said, I, I think it's fair to say that the Dodgers did not want to see Joe Kelly for the second inning in, in Game 5 of the NLDS, uh, and I'm sure that has been talked through, you know, although that is not, you know, nobody has publicly criticized him on that. So we must acknowledge the legend of Chico, right? We can't complete, uh, I guess, if this is a season preview, and I don't know whether Chico will be a big part of this season on the field, but he's been a big part of it so far. So Dodgers clubhouse attendant Francisco Herrera, nicknamed Chico, has been starring in intra-squad games and making spectacular catches and throws. Do you know him well, and do you know how he is responding to his sudden stardom? I don't, I couldn't say I know him well. I've, I've definitely been around him, you know, many times. We've probably spent, I don't know, a hundred hours like in the same room together. No, more than that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of hours in the same room together. Um, but we are both working. He much yeah. harder than me. And so, no, it's, it's cool. It's been fun. You know, I think everyone is desperate for distractions and, and entertainment and, um, there, there's some fun plays for sure, and I think the way he's handled it has been pretty cool. I know they launched a T-shirt, and he he suggested that he, you know, that the, the T-shirt company was offering to split the, give him a portion of, of the proceeds from it, and he donated his, half of his portion to uh, Justin Turner's foundation. So it seems like he's taking it, you know, in, in stride and really nicely. And uh, but yeah, it's it's the time is uh, sort of up. You would think, you know, they're a week from the season. They're not going to uh, keep playing a clubhouse attendant. And Dave Roberts has had to play the role of shutting down everyone's dreams of letting him bat. Although Herrera has said also that he does not swing regularly and was not that interested in swinging because he thought he was going to make a fool of himself. But yeah, it's been fun. I, it's just sort of it's just like what can you do but laugh. So the Dodgers have obviously been incredibly successful, but a World Series has eluded this particular group, and I'm curious if they've talked at all about what it would feel like for them if they were finally able to get that monkey off their back in this weird shortened season. The ring is still a ring, but have they talked about whether it would sit right or if they would need to really see something over a full season's worth of games for it to finally be resolved? (laughs) Every player that's been asked that says that they think the ring would be, uh, you know, that a championship would mean the same this year as it would in any other year because everyone is going through the same uh, conditions. Um, you know, whether everyone else in the, in the league will agree to, you know, agree with that and whether like the, you know, teams that don't make the playoffs will agree with that, you know, remains to be seen. But I think, you know, I think there's some validity to the fact that this is going to be a challenge, you know, a unique challenge, a different challenge than anyone in the league has ever faced before, you know, if indeed a season is completed and a postseason. So they, they say that, it, you know, it would it's going to be the same, you know, that and that that's why they're here. You know, that's why they're in Los Angeles. That's why these guys have, you know, have come back to Dodger Stadium and are trying to convene for this, you know, for the season to win a World Series, to win, you know, what the team thought that they could do before the season started. And there was a lot of momentum towards that, um, you know, as of like March 12th. So they they're they're sort of retargeting that again. And if I could piggyback on that, just the perception of this team by Dodgers fans, like I I hope that it's appreciated just how great this team has been for so long, even though they haven't completely broken through and gotten that World Series to win as many games and as many consecutive division titles as they have in this era is really impressive. So in the latest edition of his newsletter, Joe Sheehan made the case that really just on a pure baseball level, like on the field, one of the biggest losses 
losses of this season is just not getting to see the Dodgers at full strength and for a full season to see just how good they could be. I think back in March, I was planning maybe a piece on whether the Dodgers were the best projected team of the projections era, and that piece never happened, unfortunately. But I would still like to know what you think the Dodgers record would have been over a full season and also what you think it will be over a 60-game season. Over 162, I, I, you know, this isn't going to be a surprising answer, but I think I'd peg them right about at 100, you know, 99, 100 wins. Let's say 100 because who doesn't like round numbers? Um, that would obviously be, a, you know, a decrease from last year, but uh, you can't. You can't predict teams to win 105 plus games. That's just, that's not good business. Um, 100, let's say 100. And what do you project? What's that winning percentage over 60? Something like 36, 37 wins. So I'll say, um, I'll round up and say 37, which is aggressive. You know, only 23 losses is aggressive, but yeah, I'll say that 37 wins, 37 and 23. All right. Well, that will do it. We appreciate having you on as always. You can follow the Dodgers season on The Athletic and read Pedro's writing about the team. You can also find Pedro on Twitter at Pedro Mora. Thank you, Pedro. Thanks, Pedro. Thanks, guys. Bye, Ben. Bye, Meg. Okay, just a quick update, and I'm away from my normal mic here, as you may be able to tell. Pedro mentioned that AJ Pollock was planning to address the press, and he did, and he disclosed that he had contracted COVID-19. Poor AJ Pollock can't catch a break, but did catch the coronavirus about a month ago. He experienced some symptoms, which began to improve after a few days. But as Pedro mentioned, Pollock and his wife did have a daughter who was born prematurely. And so when Pollock caught COVID, he had to live upstairs while his wife lived downstairs and his daughter had to be quarantined at the hospital. So it made an already difficult situation even more difficult. Fortunately, it seems that all is well now. But just wanted to let you know that Pollock shared that info. And now we will take one more quick break and we'll be back with Joe Trezza of MLB.com to talk about the Orioles. It is finally time to talk about the last team in our season preview series, and just like last year, that team is the Baltimore Orioles, and just like last year, our guest is Joe Trezza, who covers the Orioles for MLB.com. Joe, it is not that we are delaying talking to you, it's just that the projections are not kind to the team you write about. Well, it's, it's good to be back here regardless. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember we spoke very, very late in the spring last year, and uh, now we're speaking pretty late into the summer, which is uh, is strange, but I'm happy to be here. Yep, and I believe that you nailed, almost nailed the win total last year. I think you were at 52, and they ended up at 54. They will not end up at 54 this year, but we'll ask you about that in a little while. We'll just start by asking how things are going in camp from a pandemic perspective in terms of testing or opt-outs or any other issues. Well, I would say fairly well compared to the rest of the league, there weren't any opt-outs, right? Because the Orioles are basically full of young, hungry players who kind of haven't really had a chance to play every day everywhere else, guys who are trying to assert themselves in the big leagues, guys who are kind of cast-offs from other places, came here with an opportunity to play, and some of them have really responded to that, like a Renato Nunez, who had 31 homers last year. 
or, you know, in the case of John Means, guys who weren't necessarily prospects and found themselves in the all-star game. So you don't have a lot of big salaries uh, on that team except for Chris Davis. And you have a lot of guys who are really relishing the opportunity to play. So there haven't been any opt-outs. There haven't been any testing delays that we've seen in some other places. So from a logistical standpoint, in that regard, I would say things have gone pretty good. Almost to a man, the players and the coaching staff has uh, really raved about the procedures and the safety precautions that are being taken there at Camden Yard. So all those reviews have been pretty positive. The Orioles did have at least one player test positive for COVID-19. That's Anthony Santander, who had a pretty nice season last year. He had 20 home runs, 25-year-old switch hitter, former Rule 5 pick who kind of got the opportunity to play like we were talking about earlier and really ran with it. He's probably a middle-of-the-order bat for them, the starting right fielder with Trey Mancini out. And they've had one other absence from camp, and that's Dwight Smith Jr. However, you know, the Orioles are one of these teams that is not speaking at all about any potential COVID-19 related cases. So we didn't, you know, we couldn't confirm that Santander tested positive until he actually told us the other day when he reported back to summer camp, he's active now, you know, Dwight Smith Jr. just hasn't been there yet. So he's a question mark for opening day. We can't technically say why, but besides that, things have been going fairly smoothly. And they've had some other injuries that are non-COVID-19 related, but in terms of that, it looks like there may be one player is questionable for opening day, possibly because of the COVID situation. Stepping back from the pandemic for a moment, obviously everyone who listens to this podcast will know that Michael Elias was brought in at the end of 2018 to sort of shepherd in a new era of Orioles baseball and help to direct the rebuild. He's since gone about staffing his front office with folks who are familiar to him and who can help sort of bring the team forward. So what is the latest and greatest in terms of where they see themselves in executing their vision, not only for the product on the field, but in terms of the front office culture that he's creating, some of the priorities that might have shifted around from the organization's perspective. What's the what's the latest on the Elias reign? Yeah. So if we zoom out a bit, right, the, the organization looks drastically different than it did a little less than two years ago when Elias and, and Sigma Dell came in. Just in terms of analytics, specifically, they had an analytics department of, you know, basically one full-time employee when the last front office kind of left. Now they have they have about 10 full-time employees um, and some seasonal interns that really that boost that staff up a little more. There's been a complete restructuring of the player development and scouting operations, and they've really modernized those fronts um, in terms of the synergy that those departments, you know, how, how they work together, um, the data that they that they really prioritize, and also the way they go about the scouting, right? So they've done you know, even before this pandemic hit, the organization was really shifting toward, you know, in-house video scouting rather than the more traditional on-the-road scouting. They had hired a bunch of analysts last winter to kind of modernize their, you know, operations in that department. And from a culture standpoint, they're in the process now of, you know, they're, they're before the pandemic, there was one full draft class. Now there are two, and they're trying to really implement philosophies and these procedures in a top-down way throughout the organization. They've brought in guys like Chris Holt into these new roles, basically. You know, Chris Holt is called the director of pitching, and he's the guy who sets the pitching philosophies throughout the organization. And because the major league team is full of so many inexperienced uh, younger players, they kind of view the AAA roster and the MLB roster as like kind of a combination and one whole thing. 
And so these practices are being taught basically from the big league level all the way down to rookie ball. And the goal really is to create some, you know, cohesion in that sense and some organizational philosophies that really resonate with players from the minute that they enter the organization. And there's a big emphasis on data. There's a big emphasis on development. You know, during the pandemic this year, the player development department really strove to find kind of um, interesting and new ways to keep guys engaged. There were organization-wide meditation classes that were offered on Zoom, cooking classes that were offered on Zoom, uh, mental uh, wellness classes that were offered on Zoom. And so it's, it's, there's more of a holistic approach taken on the development side. And I would say in the front office, a much stronger emphasis on data. And that's really what was promised, you know, when Elias and, and Sig came over from from Houston, that was that was really what they had built their reputation on there. And, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it's transferred over to the Orioles. You see them using technology tools in the player development sphere that, that they, the organization did not have two years ago, like edgertronic cameras, plate discs, bat sensors, things like that. And so, you know, the first step for this front office was they were coming over with a reputation as being innovative, but they understood that they had to first build a structure that kind of caught up with the rest of the league in a lot of these departments before they can be innovative again. And I would say that's kind of where they are right now. They've really caught up with the rest of the industry in a lot of those fields. That Houston culture has undergone something of a reckoning in the last year. And I'm curious if you've seen any internal conversations in Baltimore about what they might want to tweak and sort of get ahead of. I don't think that this group has anything like the reputation that the group in Houston did, but obviously there's a ton of Astros DNA in this front office. So did you see them trying to think critically about what might work and what also might need some tweaking from Houston? You know, that's, that's a pretty good question. And when all that stuff was breaking in spring training, it was, um, you know, it was something that, that frankly the front office avoided a little bit talking about, and it's, it's fairly understandable why. You know, there wasn't really any chirping regards to the on-field stuff, frankly, because nobody suspected the Orioles of doing anything like that last year. Um, so it's kind of an open question. I mean, you know, they, I, I think it's fair to say that the people in Baltimore, when they left, there was kind of an appetite, not only to start something on their own, but to also get away from that, that Houston culture a little bit and kind of break free and not only do something that's theirs, but do something that's different in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I think that kind of remains to be seen, but at this point there haven't been, you know, a lot of that, a lot of those negative whispers or stigmas that were attached to the Houston front office uh, at, at that time. Yeah, I wrote about the Astros evocation of the Orioles in the paperback afterward to the MVP machine because I am kind of fascinated by how quickly one of the teams that was seen as a laggard and a late adopter could actually catch up. And it seems like their efforts really did pay dividends pretty quickly. I noted in the book that their minor league pitchers improved their strikeout rate in 2019 more than any other organizations did. So it seemed like there was sort of an overnight difference, at least in that area. But I guess two questions about that. Do you think that they have found any way to push forward and do things that even the Astros weren't doing when the ex-Astros officials were still in Houston? Is there any way to tell? Is most of that just kind of getting up to par with where they were in Houston? Or, or do you think they've done anything differently this time around? 
And secondly, I wonder if that asterisification extends to the transformation of the scouting staff, which we saw in Houston, a, a big downsizing there. Yeah, so th- just to answer your first question first, I think that kind of thing would be a lot easier to spot if there were actually minor league games happening this year. <laughs> True. You know, I, 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 I do think that last year was a bit of an onboarding for everybody in that regard, and there was exceptional buy-in from the players who, especially when it comes to the data and, and, and some of the player development practices, were really hungry to experience these kinds of things because they'd heard about them happening in other organizations and not in Baltimore. And then suddenly, you know, the new front office comes in and all these tools are available to them. And there was a lot of buy-in and a lot of um, enthusiasm for that. And I think it translated in a lot of ways, you know, one of those being the strikeout rate that, that you mentioned, you know, the walks were down throughout the organization. The rotation at, at AA was really, was really exceptional front to back. And if, you know, the system is viewed now as a system that, you know, before these last two draft picks, if you, these last two draft classes, if you take those guys out, it's really a pretty top heavy, but pitching heavy system. It's something the Orioles really haven't had in quite a while. Um, and a lot of that was accomplished on the development side in terms of guys who were already there getting better once Elias's front office came in and worked with them. And they let go about 11 scouts, I believe. It was last September. This was something that happened at the end of the year last year. And then they hired roughly the same number of analysts this winter to basically work in-house in the warehouse at Camden Yard. You know, in these kind of like hybrid scouting analyst roles, they work for the scouting department, but but in tandem with the analytics department and there's a lot of meshing there's a lot of merging with those two things there are philosophies that kind of go go throughout and that really wasn't the case in the old structure um, in, in a lot of cases they've hired younger analysts uh, more data savvy analysts and guys who have been hired under the you know direction that you know there are certain things that we look for here in the numbers and here's and you know how to go find them so go find them and i think the results of that, at least early on, could be seen in the group of non-drafted free agents that the Orioles went after after the draft. You know, in a lot of ways, Elias and Sig really prided themselves on finding sleepers and steals late in the draft using numbers and using data when other teams weren't doing that. And now you kind of see that, you know, that intent trickle down to the scouting department as a whole in these kind of you know, lower level non-drafted free agents, guys who would maybe have been drafted in the 10th round or after in a normal year or the fifth round or after in a normal year. You know, the Orioles think that they did really well on some of these guys. These are mostly high strikeout, low walk pitchers, um, guys with high spin rates, guys um, who they have more than, they have, that they have peripheral data on from a lot of the times D2 or D3 schools, guys that are undersized, diamonds in the rough, if you will. And, you know, it's fair to say that, that, their crop, which is about eight players deep so far, you know, it's pretty reflective of, of the, the revamped philosophies in the scouting department and how they, and the new hires that they've made and, and in the restructuring they did over the last 10 months or so. So one of the guys who uh, <laughs> clearly was not a diamond in the rough, he was just a diamond, is Adley Rutschman, who was the first overall pick for them last year. I know that he was recently transferred to their campsite. What are the set of circumstances that need to transpire for Orioles fans to get a look at Rutschman this year, or is he just purely a 2021 prospect? I, I really think that they're going to hold him. Look, I, one of the, the biggest 
issues the organization is facing right now is really pandemic related. It's, it's the fact that, you know, so much of their future is tied up in so many of these prospects. And the fact of the matter is most of them are going to end up missing either close to or a full year of development. And, you know, when, when we talk about how innovative the front office could potentially be, it could be in that space. It could be in how do we make up this lost time or how do we find ways, you know, to, to kind of nullify the, the, the layoff a little bit and not make it so that the timeline for a lot of these prospects is pushed back too much. That's certainly the intention with Rutschman. That's why he's, he was in summer camp. That's why he's at the secondary site. Uh, at this point, they have nine of their top 12 prospects, according to MLB Pipeline, I believe, are at that site. And, you know, they're expected to add at least a few more. They have a few open spots. But, you know, I don't think the Orioles are going to rush service time with any of these guys, especially Adley Rutschman, even though you can kind of dream, you know, and think of a 60-game season and, you know, maybe anything happens and he gets called up. And I guess that's still possible. But I really I really think the smart money is on them sending him to the double-A site, which they have, being content with kind of just getting their hands on him this this summer, you know, getting him on his feet and trying to salvage as much development this year as they possibly can. And look, maybe because the year is all, you know, because everyone's missed so much time this year, maybe next year Adley Rutschman is in the big leagues even quicker because they, you know, they don't want to lose time with him and they, they believe that they were able to salvage the, the, the development. Uh, that he might have lost this summer, but I really don't think they're going to rush him in any circumstance, and especially in these very extenuating circumstances. And for the folks who are not at that player pool offsite, what is this, the organization's approach to player development for them going to be? Because, you know, they, like you said, they have a lot of their best prospects in the player pool, but there are guys who I'm sure they're excited about and kind of keen to start to implement this new system on who sadly aren't going to be there for them. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a really good question. You know, we haven't really had a lot of officials address that very publicly, but I would imagine that for those guys, it's kind of going to be an extension of what work was like during the pandemic, which was, you know, we, like I mentioned before, those weekly kind of Zoom sessions, you know, an emphasis on mental health, an emphasis on, you know, workout plans and development uh, strategies that they can do at home. But, you know, it's not an ideal situation. I would have to say that they're probably going to do the best they can to keep guys engaged. But at the same time, there is a kind of uh, player specific element to this also in terms of, you know, which guys have more access to training facilities where they live, you know, which guys have more access to training equipment where they live. Some guys live in remote, really remote areas. Some guys live internationally, you know, and, and these are players across various ages as well. So, the needs for, for each individual guy vary, and I think the resources for each individual guy vary. And that's why I think you're going to see as many prospects as they possibly can bring to the secondary site, including, I would imagine, at least one of their top picks from the, from the 2020 draft, um, although that's, that's not official yet. So one of the guys who seemed most to benefit from the new approach to pitching and some of the new information is John Means, who was the Orioles All-Star last year and was their leader in war, according to Baseball Reference. And I got to talk to him for that afterward, and he's a really good interview and seems like a really inquisitive guy. And I know that he was working on some things over the offseason to try to back up that breakout because there was maybe an element of luck and low babbit to that. And so I know that he didn't want to rest 
focused on his laurels and wanted to come out and do the most he could to keep that success up. So do you think that that has paid dividends and what do you expect from him this year? Yeah, that that's definitely something to watch very closely. He was he was really, really strongly trying to add a fourth pitch um, and, and, and second breaking ball to go with his fastball, his change up and his slider. You know, the, the goal was to to get more swings and misses and really to give himself a better put-away pitch because despite all of his success last year, he was a guy who was kind of plagued by foul balls a lot. He had some um, some really high pitch counts. There were some games where he struggled to get through the middle inning, especially against better teams, uh, without that second breaking ball, without that put-away pitch. So he's really worked hard to develop a curve, more of like a hybrid curve slider. It's more of a slur, really, but he calls it a curve. And that was a big emphasis for him this winter and also this spring. You know, we were assuming <laughs> that we'd able we'd be able to see it used in earnest in April and May and June. But, you know, that, that obviously didn't happen. So, you know, I would say look out for that. He Apparently, he's added at least two to three miles of uh, fastball velocity, miles an hour fastball velocity. He was sitting 93, 94, um, according to some Orioles people in his last inter-squad start. And, you know, that, that should help him get swings and misses also. Um, but that fourth pitch was really what he was prioritizing. You know, this is a guy who is a really hard worker. He is somebody who, who actually was such a stalled prospect a few years ago that he pondered retirement. He uh, created a LinkedIn page because he thought he was going to have to get another job pretty soon. Um, he was kind of thrust onto the 40-man roster at the end of 2018 under very strange and uh, rushed circumstances didn't have a great debut at Fenway Park and then just assumed that he was going to be the first man off the roster in spring training in 2019. And he ends up having this really impressive um, ascent, not only from basically the last pitcher on the roster to the ace of the team, but also an all-star and the runner-up for, for rookie of the year. So he's not a guy to rest on his laurels. He's a guy who understands that he needs to get better. And there really isn't much complacency in his DNA. It's funny, uh, when, when you think about the Orioles front office and you think about what they did in Houston, you think of the term growth mindset, which really Sig was the guy who really brought that pretty corporate term into the baseball world. <laughs> um, and John Means has that, you know, John Means has a, has a growth mindset. Um, he's really always looking for ways to get better. Um, and he understands that uh, he's probably not the most talented guy on the field every day. And so he needs to do other things to make sure that he comes out on top. So in terms of the offseason activity, there wasn't a ton of it. And right now the Orioles have the lowest 26-man payroll or, or what would have been 26-man payroll in the American League. And depending on how you classify it, at least at spot track right now in terms of total 2020 expenditures, they are on track for the lowest in the major leagues. So clearly they were not really in the market to spend a ton and they did make some veteran acquisitions guys like Jose Iglesias or Cole Stewart if you can call him a veteran and Tommy Malone and Wade LeBlanc kind of budget shopping there and of course they moved Jonathan VR instead of paying him what he would have earned in arbitration and yet they reportedly at least had some sort of dalliance with Yasiel Puig so where does that fit into things if the overall strategy was essentially not to spend and just to pick up guys on, on the margins? Why do you think they had interest in Puig if that is indeed the case? I think that interest was pretty need-based, and it was an opportunity probably 
to get a guy at below market rate given the the end of the year. You know, well, given the timing, you know, Puig is one of the probably the biggest name, probably was the biggest name that was still on the market as of a week and a half ago or, or, or whenever it was. And, you know, this was a, the Orioles were in a position where they opened up summer camp and they were playing inter-squad games with two outfielders. They were playing inter-squad games with open outfield spots on both teams because they frankly just simply did not have enough outfielders. Anthony Santander and Dwight Smith Jr., who were both projected to be regulars, you know, were not there for long stretches of summer camp. And so, you know, the Orioles were really not interested in bringing Ryan Mountcastle, their, their really most ready and advanced offensive prospect, uh, up for opening day. And they really only had depth options behind, uh, Austin Hayes and DJ Stewart, especially with Trey Mancini out for the year. So they, they had a real shortage of outfielders. Um, and, you know, frankly, still pretty, pretty much do on the depth chart, although things have cleared up a little bit, uh, with Santander coming back. You know, the assumption is Dwight Smith Jr. will, will be active at some point. Not sure if it's for opening day or not, but, you know, they, I think they were interested in Puig because they frankly just didn't have enough outfielders. I don't think they went into the offseason with him as a target. I think that was something that materialized pretty late and that they thought they could be opportunistic with. Yeah, and I wonder what the mood of the Orioles fan base is, if you can sort of sum it up. I know that their winter fan (laughs) event was sort of grim, I recall reading at least. I mean, is there faith and confidence in this regime? Are people looking at it and saying, well, they won in Houston and they tanked and they came out of it the other side and won a World Series, although that is maybe somewhat tainted, but, you know, great team regardless. So is there a sense that things are heading in the right direction and that this is the right team to do it? Or is there frustration and impatience or both? Yeah, I I would say that that the fans were, were de- there was definitely a sense of uh, we're in for the process. You know, we trust the new front office. We, we trust what they're doing with the rebuilding. We trust the development of the prospects. We trust the drafting that was, that really existed from the time they got there, at least through the end of last year. You know, there was a bit of frustration over the winter when they decided to basically just let go of Jonathan VR and they traded Dylan Bundy. But there is also a palpable excitement about a lot of these prospects, especially Adley Rutschman. Grayson Rodriguez is a guy fans are really excited about. They have D.L. Hall, and then they have this whole 2020 draft class, which kind of, I, I would say, <laughs> got a little bit of a mixed review. Um, you know, the Orioles went very under slot at number two uh, to get Heston Kerchad. And when there were other guys that were more highly touted on the board, and that was the first time where I really saw fans since I've been there at least and I came in really the same week that Elias did he started then I started like the next week on the beat Um, that was the first time I really saw a bit of skepticism you know it was a creative pick it was um, it was it was frankly a little gutsy Um, it it was it was a strategy that went against the grain and Carlos Correa style strategy I guess yeah yeah you know very similar to that and they didn't get a young shortstop you know they got a college outfielder so it's a little so it's a little different and you know that was the first time I saw people people start to question a little bit you know maybe maybe you know maybe we're not so sure about this but that being said I think overall the fans want a winner they they want they want things to get back to normal it's a very it's a very proud franchise in that way they want they they love their Orioles especially when they're contending but there was this this widespread trust in the process, at least initially, 
And I think for the most part, it's still there. That said, you know, this, this season, this, this lack of a season or lack of a minor league season of development really doesn't speed things up. And I think that's something to keep an eye on looking forward. There were a few bright spots and breakouts last year for a team that won 54 games. There were some players to to be pleased about, whether it's Means or VR, who again is gone now, or Trey Mancini, who I will ask about soon, or Hanser Alberto. Is there anyone in that kind of category of holdover or veteran who might have more in him who, if this Orioles team is somehow going to play above expectations, that would be the player you would point to as potentially taking a step forward? Yeah, I, I'm definitely intrigued about a few guys who are in the mix right now. I think obviously the, the, the right answer is that there are some prospects coming this year to be excited about. But if you just talk about guys who are we're basically in the fold right now. I think you could look at Austin Hayes um, as somebody with with breakout potential. He's only and Hunter Harvey the same way in the back of the bullpen. You know, both of these guys were pretty highly touted prospects not too long ago. They had really kind of dazzling debuts late last season in small samples. Harvey's a big arm still. Uh, he's healthy. He's got really wipeout stuff in, in, in the back end of the bullpen. And Hayes is is the kind of uh, athletic player that they really Orioles don't really have elsewhere on the roster can hit for power he can run and he can throw there's a lot to be excited about there he's made some incredible plays in center field and then if you talk about guys who aren't rookies who aren't big prospects who are kind of holdovers I like to look at Rio Ruiz the third baseman who had a, about a 30 game stretch last August and September after he came back from AAA where he just turned into a different hitter the swing was different he drove the ball more consistently slugging was up near 600 for about a month and yeah it's a small sample but he came into spring training this year he added about 10 to 15 pounds of muscle he's swinging that way or at least he was early in the spring had a big spring been swinging well in the inner squad games and he, there's the Orioles just they, they think there's more in that bat um this is a guy that Elias drafted I think in the supplemental first round uh way back when he was with Houston kind of didn't get a chance there, kind of was up and down with the Braves. And then um, Elias picked him up off waivers, I think, like the week he actually got hired in Baltimore. I think it was his first roster move. And he's going to get everyday reps at third base again. Uh, he was a pretty good defender for the first half of the year last year, kind of, kind of wore down there in September with the glove. But the Orioles think there's more in that bat, and he's somebody I'm keeping an eye on. I mentioned Mancini, and of course he had surgery in March after being diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. How closely have his teammates been in touch with him, and how has his absence been felt? Greatly. You know, it's it's hard to understate uh, what Trey meant to that clubhouse, even as a guy who really was only like, he only had about three years of, of big league experience, but he really quickly became a veteran and a leader in that clubhouse. And then obviously on the field, he was he was simply their best player last year in a lot of ways. And so it's a massive loss. And it's not a team that is really built to withstand a loss like that uh, in the lineup or in the clubhouse for a lot of different reasons. To answer your question directly, though, uh, I believe that Trey was at, was pretty engaged during the layoff. Um, you know, they'd have team-wide Zoom calls, uh, and he would make it when when he could. He was posting videos on on social media, doing squats with a puppy in his hand. He's a really optimistic guy, and I think he tried really hard and did the most that he could to 
relay that optimism to his teammates and also to the public. And they've, you know, supported him at every turn. He, they, they wear his t-shirt all around the inner squad games and, and summer camp workouts. I think Brandon Hyde has worn it every single day. Mancini, he partnered with the colon cancer society, I believe, uh, to raise money for awareness and that they have t-shirts and, uh, and the team has been wearing them for workouts and, you know, kind of shouting him out whenever they can. Um, he's still in their, you know, team text threads and things like that. But, you know, from a, from a baseball standpoint, it's definitely a void that's, that's going to be felt. One of the reasons that they made an offer to Yasiel Puig is because he's the kind of player, especially with the year he had last year, 35 homers, that's just kind of irreplaceable. And there's really no other way to put it. But, you know, they've, I think they've made the best out of a bad situation and they, they are hopeful that he'll be back uh, next season and, and they're all just wishing him a speedy recovery. I think when we spoke last year, we devoted some time to talking about Chris Davis and the possibility of a bounce back and what he had done differently over the offseason. And I don't know if you can call going from a 44 WRC plus to a 58 WRC plus bounce back. Maybe that's like a, a dead bat bounce. But at this point, only he and Michael Givens are still around from the last real Orioles winning team. So is there any remaining hope for something (laughs) sparking a resurgence there, or is it just sort of playing out the string now? You know, I I think there, there was actually more in that realm this year than, than there was last time that we talked, you know, last time that we talked, Chris Davis was kind of a big unknown. I mean, still kind of an unknown in terms of production, but this year when he arrived in spring training, there were palpable physique changes that you could see. And there were, you know, it's just spring training, but there were production changes that you could see also. He had a really good spring. He started off, I think it was like nine for his first 10 with three homers or something like that. And he was walking a lot. He says that he put on 25 pounds of muscle in the offseason, that he's maintained some of that. And if you talk to anybody in the organization, all they really talk about is, is his strength and how it's kind of back to like crush Davis level. And they're hopeful that that can do wonders for his confidence and uh, help turn around his production in the box. Uh, look, there, there really isn't much chatter right now about his roster spot. Like there was a year ago, you know, he's the everyday first baseman and uh, he's going to get at bats. And especially with Mancini out, there isn't really a log jam over there when a guy like Ryan Mountcastle, a prospect that they want to see comes up. So, he's going to get his at bats and he's going to be a big part of the lineup. And, you know, you could, you can argue whether his very steep decline is mechanics based or mental based or confidence based or a combination of all three. And there are certain things that you just can't, that age just takes from you and and that can't be recovered. But, you know, body wise, he looks different this year and he was swinging the bat differently in, in spring training and the ball was carrying differently in spring training and you know it's it's always kind of impossible to know what how that's going to translate during a regular season especially uh, this year when the regular season is four months removed from spring training but there is there's more palpable optimism on that front than there there was a year ago or maybe 16 months ago and he's going to get a chance to 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 prove that he can turn it around or maybe maybe he can't but we're going to see 
Yeah, and with Dylan Bundy gone and Trumbo gone, there just aren't really a whole lot of very familiar faces around, so I'm sure fans would be happy to see him have some success, although I guess he'll have to strike out less than 40% of the time in order to really use that strength to some advantage, so we'll see. But I guess for a last pre-prediction question, how has Brandon Hyde and his staff gelled with the ex-Astros front office and what are his hallmarks as a manager thus far? Um, Very optimistic. He is somebody who brings a lot of energy and it seems like guys really like playing for him. His message to these, a lot of these young guys has translated in a lot of ways because it's come with an opportunity to play. And it, you know, he's basically encouraged them to go take it and to do the best they can. I mean, look, we we really weren't able to discern a lot of uh, of his managerial tactics last year in terms of in-game strategy. Right. You know, in terms of bullpen use or lineups or whatever. They, a lot of times they were just hamstrung from a from a personnel standpoint, and they were just games from a roster standpoint that they were just overmatched in a lot of the time. And there were some really low lows, especially for a first-year manager to go through. And you know, things aren't going to be that easy this year either. And I think everybody understands that, knows that. But, you know, this is also a guy who doesn't really let that, uh, or he tries not to let that outside perception kind of infiltrate their clubhouse and their mentality. And, you know, they're, they're trying innovative things now, team building things, competitive things, um, in their workouts, you know, in the way that they, that, that the, man, that the coaching staff interacts with the players, that the, the way that the players interact with each other in order to kind of like, you know, keep things steady on a day-to-day basis and help these guys turn the page, you know, in a year that things are, are going to be challenging. So, look, I think his job is to get the most out of as many of these guys as physically possible. And, you know, if you look at a, a, a case like John Means last year or Hanser Alberto, a lot of these guys that had kind of surprise nice seasons, I mean, there, there is some evidence of that. So, um, you know, I think his message has resonated and, you know, I, I think that this is, if last year was a challenge, this, this 60 game season is an even bigger challenge for a second year manager, just in terms of logistics, but, but we're going to see how it goes. Well, that takes us into the last question, which is, how will it go? So I want to ask, A, how many games do you think the Orioles would have won in a full 162-game season? And then how many games do you think they will win in this one, which is maybe just prorating that winning percentage over fewer games? Or maybe (laughs) you think they are better or worse suited to this short season than the typical team? Okay, I'm kind of doing this off the cuff, but... um... I think you have to you have to barely assume that the loss of Trey Mancini really kind of hurts the win total a bit. And yeah, there are going to be some surprise performances, I think, and some guys that do better than than than, than we think that they would have. But um, I think overall, I think it's a I think it's a worse winning percentage than last year, just simply because of the loss of Trey. And what was it last year? They had 50, 54 wins. So I, I guess I'd say in a year for a full season, I'd say maybe you know. 51, mm-hmm. and I'm not entirely sure how that translates uh, to a 60 game season. But my 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 estimate was was 21 wins uh, this morning. So mm-hmm. I think I'm going to stick with that. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to well, stick with 21. Yeah. 
I guess if you have to miss most of a season as a fan, this would be the time when you want to do it. I mean, unless it derails their rebuild or or sets so many players back that it really affects their comeback, then if you have to just bypass most of a year, then you want it to be when you are maybe the worst team in baseball. Just you save yourself some bad baseball that way. You know, on top of everything else, it's not an easy schedule they have. They've yeah. faced the NL East. It's a really good division, um, so that that doesn't help things either. Um, they have to face the Nationals a bunch of times. I mean, basically everybody in that division can contend, really, except the Marlins, probably. So um, it's it's a rough schedule for them. Losing losing Mancini is a big blow on top of that. So yeah, I, I think what you said is is accurate. That the the main goal of this season, I think, is just to salvage as much much development from as many of the guys that they care about um, as they possibly can. And, um, you know, that's going to be a massive challenge. Um, And uh, they're doing it in unprecedented kind of circumstances. So, um, you know, it probably won't be known until the dust settles, but um, at the same time, they're going to, they're going to play a season too. (laughs) All right. Well, we (laughs) wish you the best this year and we wish for you to have a, a maybe better team to cover in future years so that we can talk to you earlier in our preview series. But for now, you can <laughs> follow the Orioles on MLB.com, where Joe writes about them, and you can find him on Twitter at Joe Trez, T-R-E-Z-Z. Thank you again, Joe. Thanks, Ted. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. All right, that will do it for today and this week and this series. Thank you for listening and following along. You still have a few days to catch up on any team preview podcasts you missed, so just look on the show page or in your podcast app. You'll see links to all of the other episodes and teams. Very handy-dandy widget designed by Sean Dolinar. And in addition to recommending the positional power ranking series that Meg has been working so hard on at Fangraphs, I'd recommend checking out the Ringer's MLB preview package, which we started in March and suspended, just like this season preview series on the podcast, and have recently resumed. So you can find a bunch of stuff by me and Michael Bauman and Zach Cram and others. This week I wrote about whether the 14-season streak of increasing strikeout rates in MLB will actually stop this year in light of the Universal D and some of the other changes that we're seeing this season. And I also wrote about how Sabermetrics is dealing with the 60-game season, how it's affecting baseball reference and fan graphs and baseball prospectus and the way that stats are calculated and presented, which was interesting to me and I think probably would be for a lot of you. Also wrote about spin rates and sticky stuff and MLB's attempt to cut down on foreign substance usage by pitchers and what that would actually do to the game. You can also support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Jatticus Ryan, Michael Tatlock, Marcus McCann, Kenji Sakino, and Rebecca Vaughn. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you next week. Opening week, there will be Major League Baseball, and we will be here to do podcasts about it. Talk to you then. I'm inspired by the front rows. They're the reason I'm prepared for the final frontier. We're here. We're here.